Andy, my dude, have you heard of the magical website builder known as Squarespace? Ugh, not another Squarespace ad. I feel like every podcast is sponsored by them. <laughs> hey, 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 don't knock it till you try it. Yes, okay, it is overhyped. But actually, it lives up to the hype. Squarespace is like a website fairy godmother. With a click of a button, your site transforms into a beautiful masterpiece. A website fairy godmother? That sounds interesting. What makes it so magical? Well, for starters, those slick templates make anyone look like a professional web designer. Pick one, customize the colors and fonts to match your brand, and voila. Plus, the drag-and-drop fluid engine is so easy, your grandma could build a site on Squarespace. Well, she did knit me a lovely scarf last Christmas. Maybe website design is next. Exactly. And when you're ready to sell your Nana's handmade scarves online, Squarespace has built-in e-commerce. Add a store with one click. Get flexible payment options. Then watch those sales roll in. And when she wants to teach others her steezy scarf skills, Squarespace's new courses feature is just the ticket. Nana can set up her curriculum and enrollments and payments in a snap and become the next e-knitting influencer. Wow, you really sold me with the grandma angle. Sign me up for that free try. Just go to thenextreel.com slash Squarespace and transform your site into a beautiful Squarespace masterpiece. Well, thanks, Pete. Even though it's overhyped, Squarespace actually sounds perfect for Nana's site's needs. Appreciate the warning on the ads, though. I'll brace myself next time I listen to a podcast. Anytime. Let me know if you need any help getting that site up and running. Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to support our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. I'm Molly Bloom. Do you know about me? I read your indictment after I got your call last night and I bought your book. Do you understand that you are charged with operating an illegal gambling business? Are you taking me on as a client? I don't think I can convince my partners to take a flyer on the poke princess. If you think a princess can do what I did, you're incorrect. I'm getting that you don't think much of me, but what if every single one of your ill-informed, unsophisticated opinions about me were wrong? 
be amazed. You have found your way to a brand new episode of The Film Board from The Next Reel on Rashpixel.fm. We spoil movies, and tonight's brand new episode for the brand new year is about Molly's Game, even though its limited release was on Christmas, technically. Its wide release was this week on January 5th, so it's likely showing in your neighborhood theater right now. Now, as a tribute to this movie being Aaron Sorkin's directorial debut, he also wrote the screenplay, uh, tonight we're going to try and find out which one of us sounds the most Sorkin-y. I don't think I'm going to win it, but let's say hello to the thugs of the moment. How much Sorkin do you have in your bag, Steve Sarmento? Oh, only when I'm doing the walking and talking for (laughs) exposition purposes. Which which we'll talk about tonight for sure. Uh, How about you, Andy? Yeah, I don't know if I would ever be able to compete with anything in Sorkin's world. Yeah, he's a um, yeah. Well, and there's a lot of uh, writing. I think that there we're going to have to talk about with Molly's Game and and some of the other films that he's done too. I'm JJ, and though I don't know a whole lot about Aaron, um, Aaron Sorkin in particular, it's quite possible that I went to school with Molly Bloom. Andy, you too, right? It is entirely possible. I'm not sure what year she graduated from CU, but it, the timing. Uh, in this movie, which I didn't expect going in, it makes it seem like it might sync up with a bunch of us Buffalo thugs that are involved with the podcast, so that might be interesting. And I don't think you can find our college transcripts anywhere, but you can find out generally more information about all of us and this show and all of its sibling shows at thenextreel.com. Also, come follow us on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, which I just started getting back into, uh, at The Next Reel to catch quick hits about the fun stuff we're doing and other fun stuff in the film industry. And even some other just generally fun stuff. It's all very fun, but literally the most fun you can have with us is by supporting The Next Reel on Patreon and get access to the show drafts feed and other special ways to interact with us beyond the podcast itself. Check it out at patreon.com slash The Next Reel. Okay, I wanted to kick off our initial thoughts tonight with an anecdote from the most popular review for this movie on Letterboxd. One guy named Evan wrote out Google's definition of heaven and then defined heaven for himself as sitting in a theater listening to Jessica Chastain speak Sorkin dialogue for 140 minutes. (laughs) So how heavenly did the Chastain and Sorkin connection hit you, Andy? I loved it. I had uh, an an incredible time watching this film, uh, seeing this story unfold, um, Jessica Chastain is uh, one of those performers who um, can play such interesting characters on screen that uh, completely absorb me. This was certainly one of them, much like uh, Miss Sloan that she had just done or Zero Dark Thirty that we also had talked about on the show. She's a really powerful actress and um, does such compelling uh, roles in great films. Um, this was... Uh, I think a great step for her doing something with Aaron Sorkin and playing such an interesting character uh, that really kind of defines uh, the power that a, a person can uh, bring into their life, but also the um, the the randomness of uh, the world and how it can call, cause you to tumble. I, I loved it. Ah, cool, cool. And you, so you know, Miss Sloan, we did Miss Sloan for Trailer Rewind, too. That's so right, yes. We're covering Jess, Jessica Chastain in, in, in a couple of interesting ways. How about you, Steve? What was it like for you? Oh, yeah, exactly. I mean, the whole uh, Miss Sloan connection was right there because of just the the voiceover narration monologue. I mean, the whole opening sequence of her just narrating sort of her whole sports history piece just really set the tone for the movie. And I thought I am so up for this. I just, the, the, the delivery of the dialogue, the way just the art 
of of her style of acting with this just really set high expectations for me from the get go. But it it really just set the tone and it carried me all the way through. I think we can, you know, there's some interesting structural pieces we can we can talk about because we've got several time frames and how Sorkin manages all the different stories and characters. But as far as you know what he's known for, which is his dialogue, he sets that for you right up front there uh, of what to expect with this and just for me, was a, a joyous ride all the way through to the end. Well, that's awesome. And, you know, I I, I feel similarly about the story, for sure. I, I I really liked the movie. It was it was completely enjoyable to me, and I didn't really have problems with any piece of it. That, that But other than that, I didn't find it particularly remarkable in many ways. Um, it it uh, Going with the story, I didn't know anything about Molly's backstory. I, I was shocked to find out that I might have gone to school with her. That was something that I was like, wow. Oh, yeah, you're Jeremy Bloom's brother, which, interestingly enough, is kind of a or sister. And interestingly enough, is kind of a point of the movie that she's dealt with in her life. Um, so that kind of stuff was interesting to me, to me. The history and the way that it was delivered, the way that the story was delivered was was really great. For me, in general, looking at the film and, and what it was as a movie, it seemed generally unremarkable to me. Um, so I find myself kind of... Um, talking about them as two separate entities when when I'm looking at how to evaluate this movie. Um, it, it didn't feel like there was enough specialness from a movie standpoint for me with this, but I'm really happy that I watched it. And I think it's a great movie to go out there and see, especially because potentially we might get some uh, award buzz surrounding this movie because of all of the people involved and what's going on with it as well. So in in moving on to sort of talking points about this movie, uh, for me, um, looking at the the story and what was going on with how it was being delivered, it, it kind of got to have three separate pieces for me. And I felt like uh, Sorkin actually uh, treated these different pieces a little bit differently in, in terms of style. Um, and and the three pieces that I, I really keyed in on was the, the internal family psychology with uh, Molly and her father and and how the family operated, uh, her, Molly's personal life story. So moving from the family onto everything else. And then the legal drama, which really kind of is the crux of the story, why the book came out originally, the Molly's game book, um, and the sort of case that the, that the country is, is putting against Molly, uh, in, in terms of her poker game, which of those pieces of the story point seemed to be the focal point for you guys. Did you have one story that you seemed to key, key in on, on that? Or was it just kind of a, was it, was it taking it in as, as a whole for you guys? I think it's a little tricky to completely pinpoint um, because I, for me, it really did the the way the the each of those stories kind of folded uh, into each other. I, I think uh, made for kind of one complete whole. That being said, um, I, I think the the these particular story beat that I really latched onto um, more than any was her relationship with her father. That really comes out uh, in the ice skating um, sequence that we have. Um, that um, I found to be an incredibly powerful moment um, that defined so much of uh, everything in her life and the way that um, like her father pushed her, but also the way that she reacted to things and, uh, you know, pushed herself. And uh, I, for me, I would say that was kind of the key element. And, and that moment gave me a lot of additional perspective on a lot of the other bits throughout the film. 
See, for, for me, that whole ice skating, it was a little bit, I don't know, just too on the nose with so many things, I guess, because he, you know, basically he, you know, her father says, you know, okay, we're going to do three years of therapy in three minutes. So to me, that's the writer saying, hey, I'm going to just condense a bunch of stuff because I've already gone two hours. And to me, it was just a little bit too convenient for, I mean, it's an emotional moment. And to me, as a, a father of two daughters and, you know, that whole moment of I'm, you know, I'm going to find somebody to find that guy because nobody hurts my daughter uh, was, you know, emotionally was very powerful. But for me, I'm looking at it from, you know, the writer's perspective. And for me, what I think, you know, Sorkin was focusing on was and I felt were the the most uh, well-written parts. I think the parts that were most enjoyable were the scenes with, with Molly and her lawyer. So you've got Idris Elba and Jessica Chastain. And for me, those were the moments, those were all the big scenes. That's where it was like, he let loose with just, you know, his Sorkin-esque dialogue. Um, I know the movie's marketed as this, you know, whole poker thing. And there, that is there. But to me, it was really about the dynamics of those two characters he's reluctant to take her on. He eventually does. He's trying to find, he's, he's trying to unpack her and figure out how she works or why she's making these decisions. And to me, that's the compelling part of the story is him trying to understand her. You know, why she's, she's got all this information. She could have sold the book rights and made millions of dollars. She hasn't done that. Why, why is she playing the game the way she's playing? You know, she's putting herself in, you know, the worst situations ever for what reason he doesn't understand. And the sort of following along that and and him sort of starting to realize what her motivations are, or her reasons for making these decisions. Uh, that's to me, the, the true story and of, of what this movie is really about. Well, that's interesting. It, and I, I guess that's why I, I kind of wanted to bring it up. I think I fall a little bit more with Andy on this one in terms of the the family psychology piece. I actually, I was kind of just trucking along with the story in a really sort of a documentarian kind of way up until the ice skating scene. I, I didn't have an emotional connection to the movie until it went into that family psychology bit. And I think that, you know, it's interesting that, that Sorkin's going, um, that, that Sorkin made this movie uh, when I think that, you know, like a lot of the people <laughs> talk about Steve Jobs the Sorkin Steve Jobs movie and um and they talk about that really the purpose of that movie was to show that uh while he was a great innovator that he was also kind of a crappy dad. So you think talk about these these um these these daddy issues kind of thing and and I thought that this was that I wasn't really into the movie to be honest until that point. So I like Steve that you have a different take on that and that um that those scenes with Idris Elba were able to kind of get you to a different level with that as well. Um, you talk about the dialogue, the Sorkin-esque dialogue in those pieces um, and how it relates to the poker game, I think is interesting because, um, you know, we look at this and I think about like Mamet writing uh, Heist or something like that, where it's it's really where those moments in particular, those interactions between Molly and Chaffee, uh, Idris Elba and Jessica Chastain, um, I think really kind of show the thing of where all of a sudden Sorkin reveals himself as this is how uh, dialogue is done in a Sorkin environment and we're going to apply it to poker or we're going to apply it to the legal drama there. And I think uh, that was really evident in those scenes. Um, Did you guys feel like the poker played an important role in the movie? Oh, sure. I mean, I I definitely think it was. And it was was interesting. It was entertaining. I mean, there was a lot of uh, stuff that worked really nicely through those sequences about, you know, her kind of 
creating and running this world. Um, but again, for me, it was just, I mean, so much of it was about not so much just about poker itself, but about her as somebody who was kind of coming into power as, as a woman who could control and, and kind of create these environments. And that's what I, I took out of it. It, it wasn't even really a poker movie other than the fact that the, the whole movie in a way is kind of, you know, this elaborate poker game as you're watching these cards get played in her life and everything. Um, but uh, I found it to be a really interesting element. And um, what I think for me was most interesting about the the poker sequences is the people who came in and out of her life and and ended up being those those frozen pine branches, I guess you could say, that kind of would would trip her up and push her into different directions. Yeah, that and that's that's interesting there too. I found you know we talk about the poker being part of the movie, but not being the focus uh, on Amazon. As I was looking for uh, sort of resources on this movie, the other suggestions were all card movies. You know, it brought up Rounders as a suggestion to like if you like Molly's game, or, or the, and I feel like that's missing the point. I think um, the th- the things that we're talking about, the legal drama, the, the 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 parental psychology there, I think that's that's more of what this movie is really getting into. Yeah, this is a poker movie, but if you look at what Aaron Sorkin has done over his past few. The films he's written, you've got this, you've got the Steve Jobs movie, you've got Moneyball, you've got The Social Network. He's, to me, really proven adept at taking a story that's based on actual events and then, yes, adapting it from a book or from some other source material, but then also making it his own to tell to make a specific point about that person because you know Steve Jobs, everybody's read the biography or whatever, and you know he made some choices to set take that story and focus on, you know, these, these three days and, and cram everything in. So, you know, the, the loyalty to the actual events that, that truly happened and, and having the ability to now manipulate those to serve the story that he wants to tell or the message that he wants to communicate to me, that's what this is. It's not a poker movie. Poker is just one part of the story of, to me, what he keyed in in Oz was who is Molly Bloom? Why is her story interesting. And, and that's the question I had when I walked in, because I'd read the first half of her book um, and, and sort of gave up because it just, it wasn't compelling writing. And I thought, okay, what is, what did he see in this story that he was going to bring? Because I knew it was not going to be a straight adaptation of her book. That would just not be very entertaining at all. It, it was, you know, you just have this sequential biological, you know, biographical narrative of like, this happened, this happened, this happened. That's not compe- going to make for a compelling film. What's interesting, the choice that he made, as far as I can tell from the chronology that I can figure out, is the way things played out in her life was, yes, there was the initial, you know, FBI piece. Then the book did not come out till after the second hearing, which is what we see see in the movie. That's everything with Idris, Idris Elba in, in that case. That happened in 2014, and that the outcome of that happened, and then her book came out. By moving that hearing after the publication of the book allows, I, I think, what he's doing is gives us, gives the characters the ability to now comment on her story because it's now in the past, they can talk about the book. You know, her her attorney Jaffe, Idris Elba, can can talk about the book and events, and they they have a conversation about a story that's already happened. And to me, that was the, I think, the key to cracking this story was she's had some events that happened in her life. Now we're able to step aside from those a little bit and 
look at them from a distance as opposed to her book still being like really fresh with dealing with the outcome of everything. And to me, that was the the shift and why I feel like that's why I felt that was the story he wanted to tell in the book. There's nothing about her attorney or anything. I mean, unless she gets to that at the last half of the book, it's really about, here's my story. I was the skier. I, here's how I got involved in these poker things. There's not the sort of objective uh, commentary. And to me, that's what makes this really work. Well, and, and looking at a, at a, at a screenplay and what a writer brings to it, particularly with a biopic like this, um, I think it says a lot about Aaron Sorkin and his ability to hone in on those particular elements within the story and find the way to tell this story in a way that for me was incredibly effective. It wasn't just, you know, starting in, uh, you know, her skiing career and then just kind of chronologically moving along through it. The way that that Sorkin found to um, to uh, structure this screenplay, I think speaks as highly of him as a writer as his dialogue. I, it was a very tricky script to to find the way to uh, to to get that flow moving back and forth throughout her life. And um, yeah, I think it was a really effective way to uh, deliver what we get here. Yeah, I think that's great too. And and one of the things that we we've kind of tossed out as a thing to talk about is the idea of small things that change people's lives, right? And that's and that's really sort of the the way the frame at which this is set up. And that's done by this by by Sorkin by the screenwriter in this, right? In in we can take a look really from just talking about the first shot to the last shot. We're talking about the snow and her life before, and then the last shot of the film is a tilt down to reveal this pine branch that she describes early in the film about why they're there that changed her life wholly. And and that whole concept is something that comes from the script. So I think that's, I, I agree with that. I think that's, that's really insightful. And the story is told in a really interesting way. I think the point that you make, Steve, about inserting or, or changing the timeline for the effect of creating the uh, the interesting character drama between Chaffee and Molly um, about why, why didn't you name more names and things like that and leading to the ultimate sort of redemption of their relationship as he goes on to defend her i think i think it's super important and i and i think those are really smart uh, smart choices to make in the way to tell the story in the script what else uh steve what else can you tell us about uh, how the book hit you i mean any typical person cannot really step outside themselves to be objective about their story so you're getting a very much biased version of her her story um you know she's got a reason to tell her story and i i don't know what the that reason was um i mean in the in the book she names a lot more names so there's a lot more celebrity names that are thrown around oh oh yeah no if um if you you do a little bit of googling you'll see i mean toby mcguire is pretty much player x i mean he's in the book he is the one that is really you know the poker fiend that is is really driven he um you know in her book she says he's the one that's got this like the the auto shuffler machine and he like lets her borrow it to use in the games and all that but you know as she presents it as things go along he starts becoming a little bit more aggressive and assertive and wanting you know to manipulate the game a little bit and so those those things come out so Player X, you know, is pretty much Tobey Maguire, but she also names like, like, I think like Ben Affleck and Leonardo DiCaprio. She names some of the like New York guys. So there's a lot of names that, that aren't changed 
in the in the book, um, which I was surprised in the movie because in the book she says it's the Viper Club, it's not the the Cobra Club. She says it's yeah the Cobra yeah. So she's named specific places. Now there may be a few names she's she's changed, but she's in the book it's really caught up in a lot of the details of the poker, and she's really walking to ha- through the steps of how she went from you know as as we see working for this guy. He wants her to start running these games for him and then how she uses that as a launching pad. All of that part of that poker story pretty much followed along with her book of, you know, eventually he fires her. She's like, great, I'm going to go start the games on my own. And it starts to become bigger and bigger. And that's when things start to get a little bit out of control. So that's that's right there with the book. There was nothing in there about her father, relationships with her father, really. I mean, brief, you know, a little bit of setup about her her brothers and all that. Yeah. My mom saw this, you know, earlier in the week and she, you know, was like, Hey, should I go out and read the book? I really enjoyed the movie. I'm like, no, do not read the book because it is, it is not like the movie at all. I mean, Sorkin sets up in the beginning so many things as she's doing her little history about the ski slope. I mean, all the details it's, it's at a 35 degree angle, which is the same as the pyramids. And he's starting to use, you know, visual graphics to convey information. And he's introducing that early on and he's going to come back to that as he's got to explain poker. So he's getting the audience acquainted with some of the storytelling devices he's going to use. The Molly Bloom in this movie is comes across as much more intelligent than the one in the book, because I think she's just really rooted in herself and her story. She's a different person altogether. Well, and that's that holds true for what we expect out of Sorkin's screenplays, just like uh, Zuckerberg in Social, uh, Social Network. Network. Right. I mean, that's... Uh, uh, just watching the opening scene in Social Network, where uh, you know he's he's on that date and it, everything falls apart. I mean, it's it's such a brilliantly written scene that uh, Zuckerberg's like it never nothing like that ever happened in my life. I, I, it so much speaks to to what Sorkin brings to uh, the table as a writer and how he kind of approaches the world in creating these these characters and i think he looks at it in very much kind of a macroscopic way where he takes the overall story and he finds the elements that that work to kind of create an a, a compelling story um not just a life story biopic type of story but an actual story story and and allows himself to adapt it and i think that's a tricky thing in the land of of uh biopics because you're always dancing on the the fine line of uh you know what's true and what's not but i i think um more and more people uh while they try to uh keep with you know as much of the the truth as they can they allow themselves to kind of change some of the facts to uh, to fit the story better. And it's it makes for compelling storytelling when you do it that way. And I think finding the right way to latch onto this character, Molly Bloom, and, and whether she's a more interesting character or not, um, she certainly is a very compelling character in the film and makes for a really interesting character to watch over the two plus hours. How do you think Sorkin would write an unintelligent character? <laughs> I, I, seriously, I, I, and I, this is not something that I thought about before the show, but like uh, as we're going down the list of Sorkin's themes and Sorkin's films and Thorkin, Sorkin's history, even going to the West Wing or you know those pieces, all of the sort of definitely all the main characters, but we talk about how the perception of Molly when she's telling her own story versus the perception of Molly when Sorkin's telling her story is is really like a god of of the mind, right? 
how would he write someone who's unintelligent? Uh, he would have them order an apple teeny in the bar. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, good call. Very good. But uh, interestingly enough, so that's a good point that you bring that up because then you think about, uh, I forget his name. I'm going to look it up. But her boss that leads to the that leads to the game, right? This, this, then they don't give his real name. So, uh, but it, he's kind of portrayed as powerful, but not intelligent, right? I guess I would, that's the way that I would describe it. So interestingly enough, that you bring up a good point is that people in this film, at least, that are unintelligent, all are aggressive. Yes, there, it's, it's very much. I think the there's the intellectual civilized person versus like the un, the unintellectual brute is sort of the the two ways that uh, Sorkin sort of divides the world. Yeah, and uh, and and we talk about the scene. The, the the thing that prompted me to get this question, Andy, is when you talk about the Zuckerberg scene in Social Network, and is is this genius that's being presented through Sorkin's writing a reflection of his own intelligence, which, I mean, I, I think he's brilliant. I mean, honestly, I, I love his writing. Um, is it because he's creating these scenes, is it a reflection of himself and his writing? Um, and that's what we, why we get that piece from when he tells the story of Molly Bloom, when he tells the story of Zuckerberg. Um, because, again, that never happened in my life, but it's in his in the movie about him. I'd love to see a, a Sorkin take on on elements within my life and exactly, you know, what what <laughs> what too. is it that he pulls out <laughs> and, and leaves behind and to see if I even recognize it by the time I look at it. Uh, it he's a yeah, he's definitely just a, a fascinating character, the way he does write uh, these people. And um, I, I, I mean, I th- maybe it would be. Uh, an interesting challenge to see him, uh, you know, writing some Coen Brothers esque uh, idiot characters. Um, you know, they they <laughs> they certainly um, can do very comedic and fun takes on the idiots. Um, but it would be interesting to see someone like Sorkin uh, do it and see what uh, how that looked. Um, but looking at, um, I mean, looking at these characters, I mean, it's it's such an interesting uh, game that gets played throughout the film. Just between our, our two leads, uh, Jessica Chastain and, and Idris Elba, like it's it's so interesting watching him try to figure out what her game is. And the title can be very much talking about you know these games that she runs, just as much as it can be talking about um, you know her game that she's playing um, in in her life. And he's trying to he's trying to key in on that. Uh, it's 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 a uh, fascinating and and you keep seeing these moments as he sees more and more um uh to Molly and the the moment where he's doing his little seat swapping back and forth uh, before he finally commits to uh to Molly um when he's uh, at the first uh trial with her um it's 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 as interesting and compelling a moment as as later when they're talking uh, before the the judge for the final time and, and she's giving her case and pleading uh, guilty and everything and 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 you have the judge uh, it, it's it's just as much a game you could almost say that Idris Elba has uh, knowing who Judge Foxman is um, and how he reacts to things as he's saying wait for it wait for it yeah um, for that final great, verdict great way to say that wait yeah. for it that was awesome yeah it, it, it's just really compelling um and and finding the way to play those moments i find uh, really interesting in terms of his direction i mean i i think we're, we're all pretty clear in liking his writing and i think in general the general public is too based on his properties out there uh, this is a directorial debut for aaron sorkin what what did you notice there in 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 for me i'll say i i didn't find anything particularly remarkable about it i found myself 
like in some of the procedural stuff that was done with the poker stuff, it felt a lot like Aronofsky. Um, it, it reminded the movie in general reminded me to, to some degree of the big short in the way that it's pacing kind of brought things out and things like that. Um, but it, it seemed generally unremarkable from a, a direction and production standpoint for me. Uh, what, what am I missing when I, when, when I feel that way and watching this movie? I don't think you're missing anything. I think it's, you know, a, a director that's going to let the story and the performances stand up front as opposed to letting style draw attention to itself. So for me, I, you know, there was, there was nothing that I could think of where I thought, Oh, that shot really seemed an odd choice or that, that camera move really, you know, pulled me out of this scene. Um, the camera, you know, placement. I mean, I would say just, you know, very traditional. There were some, there were some interesting moves. There was a, a scene, I think early on when she, she's in his office, uh, in Jaffe's office and she drags the chair over. There's a shot at least from, his desk that's sort of she's moving across the frame and I think from left to right. And then as she passes out of the frame, the camera moves from right to left. There was just some, some, you know, little touches like that, that I just noticed as, Oh, the camera's moving. That's interesting. I mean, it didn't draw me out. Like that's an odd choice. I just thought, Oh, that's a nice smooth thing. Um, but yeah, I, I think in terms of getting the performances, they were all there. The, the shots were there. Things were structured in a way to balance all sort of the story aspects we thought. So to me, I counted as a success, at, you know, first first time out of the gate to me, just, you know, just really assembled and pulled together, you know, a, a complete film and did it very well. Yeah, for me, it was uh, this was a, a, a writer a director. Uh, and so he knows his script incredibly well, obviously. And like Steve said, it's like, this is really going to be founded on that screenplay. It's not necessarily um, going to be full of, you know, other directors tricks. Uh, obviously, he doesn't he hasn't really built a body of work to kind of create any sort of style. If anything, I think his style has always come from his writing and the the strength of kind of the way that he builds his dialogue. And I, I think what worked for me here is the way that um, the the shooting style kind of allowed for that. Uh, it, it, and what I think excited me, uh, because at first I was a little nervous. I'm like, ah, Aaron Sorkin's directing a film. Is it going to feel very much like a play? Or, or is it, you know, is it going to be just too... Um, allow the camera to sit too much and just really kind of cutting back and forth between people. I think he found a way to keep things moving where it it uh, it may not have stood out in any unique way, but it never felt dull. It always there was always interesting stuff happening. Um like you said, I mean just the opening with the the you know the the bit about the the skiing competition You've got the graphics coming on, talking about the slope, the angles of the slopes. Uh, you got the little uh, information jumping back and forth in time about, you know, her binding clips and all of that sort of stuff. There's there's so many little elements that get built into it, and I think as a director, he really tapped into um, a way to tell an Aaron Sorkin script as effectively as he could being Aaron, Aaron Sorkin. <laughs> that makes sense too. <laughs> I think, you know, I, I think you make a good point in the idea of having the camera set up to see the dialogue, to see the people that are speaking the dialogue. And I think the one point, you know, I didn't really notice those camera moves like you were talking about, Steve, but the one camera shot that I was really impressed with was one that was actually set up to feature Jessica Chastain. And that's in the sort of final rant when uh, Idris Elba is defending 
defending her. And it, it's, a, it's a fantastic speech giving to the value and the virtue of Molly Bloom. Uh, and for the majority of this speech, or for a good portion, I should say, of this speech, the camera is held on, on Molly, on Jessica Chastain's character, to watch her reaction. And, you know, in, a, in a terms of a film choice to reveal the essence of the story, I thought that was a really smart move. Jessica Chastain did it beautifully. Um, and it was one of the few times in the film – it, watching from a movie perspective that I felt that they made a choice that was about a movie being a movie to relate the story. And that's, and that's why I feel that way about it. Um, it, one of the things that is interesting to me about the way I digested this film too, is this is the first time in the history of my hosting of the next, uh, the next reel of the film board where um, I watched the the show that we're talking about tonight and then watched a different movie in the theater before going to, before talking about it. And that's this morning I went and saw I, Tanya, um, which is out and it has so many weird, interesting parallels all of a sudden, right? Because we have these two uh, amazing athletes and their stories. I, Tanya is a, a lot more subjective. It's a lot more um, – I, I was really blown away by what I, Tanya was, whereas you talk about Molly's Game being a biopic um, in general. I'm When I go to the movies, I'm looking for a little bit more – art i guess in 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 terms of the movie aspect of it and i loved molly's game the molly's game story i think uh, everything all the points we're making about the way that the story was told and presented is perfect that being said i wanted more um i wanted more art when i came to the movie so uh, unfortunately in this perspective i'm comparing the two and i think everyone should go see i Tanya. that's definitely on my list uh it's interesting though because i mean comparing it to to biopics, uh, you know, the last one that I saw um, was uh, uh, The Greatest Showman, which um, I saw, you know, after Molly's Game, before we did the show. And that's an interesting, uh, that's another interesting biopic in the sense that it's, you know, aside from the fact that it's a musical, it largely, um, it it felt very much more kind of just a standard biopic aside from the music which is great the biopic itself felt fairly standard it didn't feel any you know that new or different or anything and um uh, and it did have me questioning you know how much of this is is really based on pt barnum's life or how much of it is just is is candy coated just to make it work for the musical. Well, and that, you know, I, honestly, I didn't have that on my list because I thought it was just a biopic, but when I heard it was a musical, now I'm really excited to go see it. Oh yeah, no, it's fantastic. The music the music is what really uh, makes it shine. But it's interesting because because biopics are such interesting beasts, you know. They can be um they can be something that ends up uh feeling fairly plotting because oftentimes with biopics um, you get something that's like, well, you've got to kind of journey through their life as they go through these these beats, um, whether it's looking at a longer period of their life, like, um, you know, uh, something like uh, the uh, why am I blanking on the name uh, Ring of Fire? No, the the Johnny Cash one. Um, where it, it starts with where he's young and it kind of goes through his whole life all the way all the way through, uh, you know, his successes and everything um, or something that's so um, specific to a particular moment uh, like Lincoln when Spielberg did that, which is a very particular point in um, in Abraham Lincoln's presidency. Um, it, it's such an interesting form of film because by nature of it being a story about someone's life, it can fall into some 
some kind of storytelling tropes that leave it to being, you know, first this happened, then this happened, then this. And I, I, I haven't seen Itania yet, but um, uh, where I think that um, some of them do hit that, I, I felt that it was the structure of this that pulled it out of the standard um, tropes that it could have fallen into and made it stand out and shine as a much greater uh, story. Well, I, I think that that gets into the, the two reasons people go to see, a, a, or at least the two ways to tell a biopic, which is to tell who a person is by what they did, which gets sort of in that plotting where it's like, here's all these things this person did versus those that are about who is this person and why are they the type of person they are or or what is the merit in telling their story because it's about what they stand for or believe in. And I think that's what Sorkin, to me, what I appreciate about his, whether it's this or the social network, it's like everybody knows what Zuckerberg did, but what's compelling about that story? Why do people watch that story? You know, who is he or why did he do it? What, what pushed him? And it's about getting inside the character, not so much the external events and the chronology of what happened to them. Because with most of these, you know, Sorkin adaptations, we know who these people are. People know who Steve Jobs is, what drives them, what has pushed them to make these decisions. And I think that's to me, the compelling case, you know, even though a lot of people may not know who Molly Bloom is to me, what I kept finding myself, asking as I was watching this is why, why did Aaron Sorkin want to tell this story? Cause it's not so much about poker and Hollywood. There's, you know, wh- what is he trying to tell us about who she is or what judgment should we pass on her as a person? So what, what is the redeeming qualities of this person? And to me, that was the really compelling part of a good, you know, biopic is sort of getting into the heart of the character and understanding their motivations to either redeem them or condemn them one way or another based on what they've done. Well, and I think he did all of that really well and in a creative way. I think an Oscar nomination is coming for both Sorkin and Chastain on this. Do you think that there are other nominations that might come out or, and, or, and do you disagree with that statement? I think it's entirely possible. Elba uh, would be nominated as supporting actor. Um, I, I think that he's, uh, you know, uh, delivers uh, just a lot of great stuff in it. But I mean, for me, it really is Chastain's film. She um, not only can handle uh, Sorkin's uh, script and everything, she knows how to play really compelling female characters and uh, and is just, you know, so uh, interesting to watch on screen because you can tell there's a lot going on in there. And uh, And I didn't realize this, but, you know, this is Sorkin's first uh, project with a female protagonist, and ah, and that's interesting. It it, it actually yeah. makes it yeah. really interesting that he chose to tell this story about this woman dealing with uh, kind of uh, the struggles that she has um, finding her place in otherwise kind of a man's world and everything. That's really interesting. I hadn't thought about that. Um, in it's it's great and jessica chastain is the perfect person to play that role absolutely uh other people in the movie we mentioned idris elba i thought he was great too how did i know that costner is a very controversial figure in next real lore Uh, yeah pete always has issues with him i love kevin costner i always have and uh, again like i said the 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 sequences with um molly and her father particularly at the ice rink um, I just feel there's so much strength there, and I love the way that Kevin Costner plays that. I, he's an interesting uh, father figure in this particular film, and I, I 
for me, it just it, he is uh, just spot on brilliant. Did you guys see Draft Day? Do you guys care about football I did not. at all? Yes, I, yeah, I saw that one. Yeah. So it's interesting. So I actually compare his performance here to Draft Day, and I really liked Draft Day. Um, I, I think I, I agree with you, Andy. I think I think there is a time and a place for Costner in the world, and this is this was a good one for him. His his stoic nature early in the film fits right into where he belongs, and I thought he delivered the emotional stuff really well. It it, it was very compelling to me. Yeah, it the the father daughter moment, just kind of uh, you know acknowledging the. Uh, for him, acknowledging the difficulty of why he was so hard on her because of what she saw as a child, like when that came out, it it just it's one of those just moments that breaks you. You know, it's just ugh, it was, I don't know. It really worked for me. Yep, I, 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 it worked for me too. Um, it, the, the rest of the cast, it, Michael Sarah as player or as Toby Maguire, <laughs> we're listing here. Yeah. Um, I, I'm not a major Toby Maguire fan. I liked Michael Sarah in the role. I understand. I guess I understand what he was doing. If especially if he knew it was Toby Maguire, uh, how did you guys feel about Player X? It's interesting. On on uh, Wikipedia, it says that Player X is actually a composite character of Leonardo DiCaprio, Toby Maguire, Ben Affleck, and some of the other real-life celebrity poker players. So I don't know how much um, he's pulling particularly from Tobey Maguire, um, uh, but I do find it a really interesting character. And what I loved about the way Michael Sarah played it is, I mean, he's such a lovable actor. I love watching him. But that moment when he, uh, that phone call, that final phone call when he tells her what's what, Man, uh, that was quite a moment. I also put a Chris O'Dowd on this list. He's the guy that was sort of the drunk, right? The the detective story that started everything with the detective story. Did you Douglas the, Downey? The typical is his name. drunk drunk Irishman. Yeah, yes, he's the only yeah. Irish guy, and and mistakes Molly for being Irish. <laughs> I I actually liked his role. I thought that was good. Uh, I guess maybe we could put him in the list of people that maybe are an unintelligent character that Sorkin's written. Uh, but uh, I thought he was great. He's also the boyfriend from. <laughs> Bridesmaids, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. If you go back, yeah. Um, I I really liked him. I thought he was he carried what he did. You know, he didn't have a whole lot to do, but what he was doing there was I thought was pretty special. Well, he 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 has an important part in the story, and so it's I think interesting that we get to meet some of the players, but we do get a little bit more, you know, about him. Uh, and you think it's perhaps just because oh he's he's going to be one of those guys who's like oh Molly I love you. You know, so you think it's about the barrier, you know, that she tries to create between herself and the players that this isn't going to get personal. And you think it's just another one of those stories. And then to realize that, no, it's there's much more to his character. or He's, he's much more important to her story in terms of, you know, the FBI, um, you know, his past, all of that coming to play, which I was not expecting. But it was it was nice because that could uh, that explains perhaps, you know, the way he's behaving. And I thought he did just a nice job of playing the that that <laughs> the drunk that will just sort of like ramble not finish his sentences you know everybody knows that guy uh yeah just entertaining uh you know one of those guys you 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 laugh at because of the tragedy in his life right. i guess yeah no i thought yeah. he was great any other uh the character actors in the in the in the cast you guys want to talk about i i liked uh graham green as the um as the judge I thought, you know, he had a subtle turn from a, a, a stone face to to actually revealing the the sort of the the special moment for the end of the film. I, I, I liked seeing him there. He's great. Uh, it's always great great seeing him pop up 
in whatever it is. And I mean, we're going to be talking about him later this week in our Die Hard 3 episode. So Yay. Uh, it's always nice to uh, see him popping up in films when, when he's out there. So um, for the theater experience, you know, sometimes we talk about the different things that we said. I made the joke to the box office when I bought the tickets. I'm like, dang it, I missed the 3D version. Uh. Um, <laughs> did, did you, you know, I was just joking. But um, did, did you guys, th- I didn't really feel like theater experience uh, mattered too much on this film. I don't know if it. I would say that it was a big uh, film to see. It has to be seen theatrically or anything like that. But what I did find is watching it in a uh, a full auditorium. Uh, there were, I don't know. I I guess it was one of those movies where it was nice having an audience to get, kind of get those audible reactions when things happened, like all the skiing stuff at the beginning. Um, or some of the mo- moments that happen throughout the film when you hear somebody gasp in the theater, or, you know, say something because they're shocked. There's something for me that I always appreciate uh, that theatrical experience because of those sorts of moments, because it, it just enhances the, you know, kind of the way that some of those moments play out. Yeah, I, I agree with that. My, my theater was pretty empty. I was the late, late show on uh, Friday night for it. So uh, so I had a late afternoon show. So I had, uh, I think, the the older audience that was seeing this and then going out for early dinner. So there's a... The old- <laughs> only memorable there i agree with andy there were some of those like gasps you know with the the ski accident that it just gives you that sort of permission to be you know a little bit more expressive with your emotional reactions but there's a a point in the uh, near the end where um uh jaffe says oh so he says to molly oh so you finally got around to reading the crucible and then the couple behind me is like a couple behind me is like did you ever read that no but i saw the movie and i was like (laughs) oh Do you need to have this conversation right now? Can you wait till after the movie, please? And that particular sequence that you're talking about, Steve, is uh, is great Sorkin and a perfect reveal um, about their relation, the characters' relationship. I, I I really liked that. I remember that being special. Again, in terms of dialogue, in terms of story. Um, the way that Sorkin tells a story. I thought that was awesome, especially with the idea of the witch hunt and the, you know, the, how it related to the, the story as a whole. I thought that was perfect. Uh, speaking of the box office, it, it, it's showing up as 9.5 million thus far as of yesterday. So as of January 5th and a $30 million budget. Does that mean anything to this movie? Probably not considering thinking about why it was getting made and what it potentially can do for the people involved with the movie. What do you guys think? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, Cause it's only just um, opened much wider, right? Um, I, I'm not did you exactly... guys have it on Christmas. We had it uh, on Christmas here in Oregon. We did. Yes. So, yeah, I okay. mean, I, I, so I, I saw that. And so I felt like it was actually a pretty wide release actually on Christmas. Yeah. Everything I see just shows Christmas as it's, uh, as it's opening day. So uh, I think, uh, Oh no, it, it, it is limited. You're right. Limited December 25th, wide January 5th, but uh, I, I don't know how much wider they needed to go. It just felt like it was pretty wide. I mean, it was in plenty of theaters. Uh, I saw it the 28th. Um, I agree, and I guess that's the only reason why the number is surprising to me. I, th- I would I would have thought it was closer, at least to breaking even at this point. I, I you know I'm, I I think the movie's going to end up making money, but the 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 point of it is, is it, it feels low right now to me in terms of return based on the Christmas release. Well, looking at the look, now that I look at it um, over on Box Office Mojo, it actually only opened in 271 theaters um, just just this past uh, Friday, January 5th. It opened. Uh, it, it's now playing at sixteen oh eight theaters. So it 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 has done quite a jump there. 
Um, but that being said, this is one of those movies where I wonder how much bigger it's going to get. Is this going to really draw the audiences in? Or is this one of those kind of, uh, you know, Miss Sloan type of dramas that might not uh, be able to to find its audience unless it gets some of the award nominations? Uh, oftentimes, I think you find that it really needs those to uh, to draw those audiences in when it's a drama like this. And I will say for that, you know, Steve and I did Trailer Rewind for Miss Sloan, and it is a tragedy that more people did not see that movie. Absolutely. If there is any other movie on Trailer Rewind, and we do a lot of them that deserve a wider viewership, I am evangelizing Miss Sloan to the world because it is a very special movie. And you talk about a poker game. That movie is told in the way of, like, The Usual Suspects. It's it's another one of Jessica Chastain's gems out there, and everyone should go see it. Yeah, unfortunately, she's the only person who has who got a Golden Globe nomination uh, from uh, or from the film. Uh, so no one else, no no one behind the scenes or no other performances. So gotcha. Well, in closing, is there anything else that you guys want to say about this one in terms of uh, you know what 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 else else might we be missing? Who should go see Molly's Game? It's a compelling character story, um, regardless of whether you're interested in poker. Or, uh, or, or who Molly is. I just, I, I find it such an interesting journey through, uh, kind of this, this, you know, world that she's, uh, trying to build for herself. Um, I, I was really moved by the film. I felt like Molly, um, the story as played by Jessica Chastain was just incredibly strong. And it really, uh, it really hit me in all the right ways. This is a movie that I think, um, people, would be interested in. I mean, it's two plus hours, but in no way did it ever feel slow. It always moved at a great clip, I felt. And it's just a really strong piece about, you know, life and the things that it throws at you. You can be as good as as Molly on these ski courses, but it, it can be something so inane as a frozen pine branch that that throws you for a loop and and uh, ruins all your chances of of being a winner. I just found it to be an incredibly well told story, and it was exciting to see Aaron Sorkin bring it to the screen. So JJ, I'm gonna point. I'm going through my notes. I see there's one little artful thing I did note that I forgot to mention earlier. Cool. When she is in her apartment and uh, gets roughed up by the, Ooh. I think of the Italian mafia. That was a tough, um, tough scene. The way it, they it, it's, yeah, I know, I know, I know you probably had a hard time <laughs> with that scene. The sound during yeah. that sequence, because she's she's there at her door, you know, when she's just sort of there, semi-conscious, and there's a thump of the newspaper being delivered. And then we get a montage of her over the next two weeks, and she's holed up in her apartment. And if you listen, you will hear periodically the thump of another newspaper being delivered, and it's just sort of there in the background oh, super as that scene plays out to sort of be another cue to the passage of time, which I thought was... One of those little unexpected, you know, treats that I appreciated in the film. Uh, so I wanted to point that out. And yeah, I, I'm right there with Andy on this one. I think it's a movie that if you expect a poker movie, you know, you're going to be disappointed. But this is so much more than that. And I'm you know, going to echo his statements. This is a great story about, you know, the ability to, to get up after life knocks you down. And, you know, are you going to be the, the, the victim in this? Or are you going to you know stand up and, and be yourself and live your life? And it's just a really powerful story. Very well told. And I hope people go out and see this because it, it, it doesn't need to be seen on the big screen. But 
audiences need to show up to support movies like this so that we get more movies like this. It's in that weird, you know, box office uh, budget range where it's not the huge, you know, hundred million dollar and it's not the small independent. It's in that, that mid range and people need to show up to support, you know, great art like this with great performances so that we get more stories like this. I think that's fair. And uh, along those lines, I Tanya was made for 11 million. So go out and see it. If you haven't had a chance to (laughs) now is the time that we are going to rank it. Uh, We talk about it on every show, but if you haven't done so yet, check out uh, www.flickchart.com. I've been adding a lot there lately. It provides a fun way to look at movies that you've consumed by creating a tournament-style stack ranking system, and it organizes your personal audience preferences in a sometimes awesome, sometimes wacky, but always interesting way. The movies that we've talked about on this show can be seen ranked at flickchart.com slash TNR film board. So, Andy, where do we start? Uh, We're going to kick it off here, uh, but before we do, I do need to correct something I just said. Aaron Sorkin was nominated for best screenplay at the Golden Globes. So, oh, good, good, yes. and I think that that I mean, honestly, when we were talking about, it, I think that that's that's kind of the assumption, I guess, going in to this movie and what you come out of it with is that Chastain and Sorkin are definitely the ones that are leading the charge and, and deserving of definitely. awards for it. Definitely. So we'll see how that plays out. All right, first up, we have Molly's Game or Side Effects. Uh, Molly's Game for me. Side Effects. Oh, definitely. Oh, Molly's. I'm game. a Soderbergh honk. So. <laughs> Molly's game or Dawn of the Planet of the Apes? Molly's game for me. I think I'm Molly's game too. Okay. Yeah. Molly's game or Get Out? Well, that's Ooh. a tough one. Get Out for me. Oh. JJ, did you see Get I Out? Did, not. did you survive that? You did. I'm still afraid of it. You did not see Get Out, <laughs> did you? It's definitely okay, one so, you should see. There's oh, so I much know. more going on there. I need an ally and I need the lights on, but I'm going to do it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh gosh, that was that was such a interesting and, and unique film with something. Oh gosh, but I, I'm probably going to go with Andy, and it's probably the 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 thrill of the recency of it because uh, I have not seen Get Out since what was that last February? So it's been almost a year. But yeah, I'll go with Molly. Oh, 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 I, I went with Andy get out. said get out, actually. Oh, you did? Oh, yeah. oh, no. Okay, then I guess we're going <laughs> to have to rock, paper, scissors. I guess it. we're going to, we're going to, oh, no. Okay, okay. How do we do this? All right, so we're going to go one, two, three, and then we'll say it, but we'll go like rock, paper, scissors, rock. And we just keep okay, doing it right. until we keep going until we, uh, somebody wins. Okay, here we go. One, two, two three, three, rock. Paper. Oh, you took it. So Molly's game wins. Molly's game wins. Molly's game or Logan. Logan. Logan for me. Yeah. Those are like two of my top films for 2017. And Molly's game's up there yeah. too, but uh, not cool. uh, not above those two. Molly's game or Edge of Tomorrow. Edge of Tomorrow. Edge of Tomorrow for me. Oh, okay. <laughs> We're just decisive, Steve. <laughs> it, it's not. Yeah, that's yeah. fine. I, no, I, I, I have, no, I have no, no quibbles with those Good. decisions. All right. Molly's game or Kingsman, The Secret Service. That's the first one. I'll, I'll say Kingsman. I'm going to say Molly's Game. I am going to say Molly's Game. Wow. Right. Okay. I will always side on the more serious artfulness side because of the, I think, enduring, I don't know, seriousness of masterful art over, yes, and pure entertainment is fun, but I always prefer the, the sure. art. Well, that puts Molly's Game at number seven out of 66 wow. on our chart. Okay. It, it made it into the top awesome. 10. It's only behind Star Wars The Last Jedi, Logan, 
uh, and Logan. Those are really the only two uh, 2017 films that it is behind. So uh, okay, that's really good. Yeah. Quite a quite a good slot. Yeah. For the letterbox ranking on it, I'm going to put it as a 2.5. It's right in the middle for me. Wow. What? Yeah. What? <laughs> what? <laughs> it's right in the yeah. middle. It's two point five. Is, two point, is okay. that two point five with a like? It's like with a like exactly. It's similar to like it, so exactly. If we go back to what I've done on the film board recently, the Last Jedi was a three and a like, and Murder on the Orient Express was a two point five and a like. While I had lots of problems with Murder on the Orient Express, I like it, actually they're they're kind of like opposite sides of a of a similar coin in that Murder on the Orient Express had a bunch of art. Uh, from a film perspective, but the story was tough for me. And this is in the reverse. So that's why I put it right in the middle. I, I think it's unremarkable as a film, when it's, but it's a great story. So it's a 2.5 with a like. Okay, because I was going to go 4.5. You should. And it's I number will. seven on our chart. Take that. It's, we're being consistent. It's good. <laughs> and I'm at a five and a like. This, wow. Uh, yeah, this okay. really uh, was pretty perfect for me. I, I'll tell you, I was a three until I saw Itania. all right so what's next where we go from here next month film board is going to go back to the marvel cinematic universe with uh, the black panther coming out in february which is i'm actually really exciting about uh, excited about what was the last marvel movie we saw do you guys remember we skipped thor ragnarok which Uh, i saw but we didn't talk about it on the show and we Um, skipped guardians of the galaxy 2 which so but there's one in between there i feel like i don't know i need to go was back the, was and it look. dr strange i feel like it might have been it might have been and that was great dr. strange yeah so i i'm excited for black yeah. panther uh, and i'm excited to talk about it with you guys it's gonna be fun yeah yeah next reel the main show the weekly show right now you guys are thick in die hard right we are uh later this week we'll be chatting about die hard with a vengeance oh <laughs> uh, which uh, is john mctiernan's return to the franchise so uh, it should be a fun one to chat about very cool. Uh, we got our fresh new start here with this one, and we already spoiled one for 2018. What's the new movie that you guys are looking forward to most this year, Steve? Oh, uh, it's probably going to be I'm going to be a Spielberg fanboy and say Ready Player One because uh, I'm looking forward to him being back in the seat and just having a ridiculously fun time with being an adolescent again so i'm just really looking forward to that one gotcha how about you andy yeah that one's uh that one's pretty high up on my list of of films i'm excited for uh ready player one but you know there's there are a lot of really interesting looking films coming out this year so uh so i'm pretty excited just i I think it's going to be a nice year at least i'd like to uh, i'd like to think of it that way so uh we'll see awesome i'm particularly excited about oceans eight um, because at my aforementioned mentioned a Soderbergh love, um, I'm just excited for that franchise to get back started again. I loved those movies. Um, I loved them all, even the ones that most people didn't like. So I'm really excited to see what they do um, with the women's group uh, coming out for for the Ocean's franchise. Did you hear that Steven Soderbergh has watched Ocean's Eight nine times already? No, I did not. That's <laughs> awesome. At the end of the year, he will post on his website. He's got a section of his website dedicated to his daily journal that he releases at the end of the year of every movie he's watched. Both he's read or play or TV show and I get now I don't know if it's the full movie or if he was just screening dailies or whatever but apparently Ocean's 8 shows up on that list nine times so he's he's been at least watching it from you know 
I don't know how much influence he's had, but at least he's been he's been observing and watching. Ocean's Very 8. cool. And you know, honestly, I really agree with Andy. This year looks really great. Our schedule, even for the first six months of the year, I'm very excited for every movie that we're going to watch. You mentioned Ready Player One. We'll be doing that in March, so it's going to be a really great year. Um, everyone out there who's listening, let us know what movies you're excited about for this year. Uh, come visit us on Facebook and Twitter. And like I said, I super like Instagram now too, so we can <laughs> figure out a way to be there. We we we're posting what we're doing on the weekly basis there on, on that uh, social media platform also please support us as a patron on patreon.com slash the next the next reel you'll get a lot for very little as, as little as a dollar a month and every little bit helps us keep doing this at the next reel when the movie ends our conversation begins till next Here on the film board, we have covered quite a variety of great page-to-screen adaptations over the years, from superheroes like Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight Rises, based on stories like Nightfall and The Dark Knight Returns, to horror and sci-fi like Max Brooks's World War Z and Hiroshi Sakazuraka's All You Need Is Kill, which became one of our favorites, Edge of Tomorrow, with Tom Cruise and Emily Blunt. And who could forget Andy Weir's stranded astronaut adventure, The Martian, or Dave Egger's tech thriller, The Circle? Supposedly so much better than the movie. We've also explored Stephen King epics like The Dark Tower and It, biopics like Damien Chazelle's First Man, and sweeping sagas like Denis Villeneuve's take on Frank Herbert's Dune. And don't forget Martin Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon, based on David Grant's nonfiction book about the 1920s murders of the Osage Nation. I just finished the book, and it's fantastic. It's always fascinating to look at the source material, and we often do as the book lovers we are. For those of you out there who love to do the same, head to thenextreel.com slash originals to find all of our past episodes and dive deeper into these adapted stories. And it's not just stories. We've included things like the video games Uncharted and Detective Pikachu. That's right. TheNextReel.com slash originals is your one-stop shop for in-depth looks at the sources for cinematic adaptations that we have discussed. Every purchase you make supports the film board and The Next Reel's family of shows. So what are you waiting for? Head to TheNextReel.com slash originals and get your next read today. (laughs) 